I must say, uh, I'm grateful that uh, to be with you. When I was in Australia, the early service, I had to wear uh, a clerical robe and a collar, so I'm grateful not to have to do that, although I never wore a suit. So, <laughs> adjusting. Things are different. How about we pray? We start committing this time to the Lord. <clears throat> Father, would you be gracious to us this morning as there are people here coming from all different events of the day, the week. I don't know what those are, but you do. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and be in this place and speak into the hearts of each and every person in here through your word, which you have given to us. Use me as your vehicle, your vessel, as we turn to this passage in the life of David. Father, would you speak to us? For we pray this in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Um, I wonder if... Uh, Anyone here has ever made assumptions uh, about God when it came to an expected outcome? Have you ever thought that God would act in a particular way when you did something for Him, uh, but you found that not to be the case? Uh, Have you ever put God into a a sort of equation and assumed that you knew what the outcome would be based on your actions? Well, today we are going to see that God doesn't always fit into our tidy equations and boxes because He is far greater and far better than anything we could come up with. And we pick up back in this series in the life of David, and we see, uh, as we turn to 2 Samuel 6, we see that uh, David at this point has been publicly uh, anointed as king of Israel. Now, we know that he was uh, anointed when he was a shepherd boy by Samuel, but uh, now at this point, the, the, the true inauguration is king of Israel has come, Saul has died, Jonathan has died. And the people come and anoint David as king. Then David uh, captures Jerusalem and he, he, he uh, runs off the Jebusites and he makes Jerusalem the capital. And then he defeats the Philistines in a really big battle. And so now we turn to chapter 6 where David is gathering all the men to bring up the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to the new capital, Jerusalem. And so we ask the question, what is the Ark? What does the Ark stand for? Well, apart from what Steven Spielberg and Indiana Jones have to say on the issue, what is the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God? You see, the Ark was... Uh, supposed to serve as the representation of the presence of God for his people. It reminded the people of uh, who God was and, and of what he had done. And the ark is supposed to go with the people wherever they go. 
uh, even into battle. And it's constantly reminding them that the presence of the Lord is with them. Well, the ark is captured by the Philistines at one point before the reign of Saul because of two sons of Eli, the priest. If you remember, Eli is the one that uh, raises Samuel up. He looks after Samuel. And, but Eli has these two sons, and they take the ark, and they treat it as if it's just a lucky charm. There's a battle raging on, and they think, you know what, if we just bring the ark with us, then God will give us the victory. They've created an equation that they feel they can force God's hand. But that's not the way God works. And so the ark is captured by the Philistines. And the ark goes into the temple where the Philistines keep their god, a statue of their god, Dagon. And Dagon falls down and his arms break off. And he falls down again and his head comes off. And everywhere they take the ark, no matter what city they take it to, the the Philistines in that city are covered in tumors. Because God is not a God that can be captured by an enemy. So finally, the Philistines have had enough of this, and they load the ark onto a cart, and they take it back to the Israelites. And even when the Israelites are Rejoicing, and they're fascinated with the ark, this thing that has so much power. Some of the men go to look into the ark, and their lives are taken. And so, frightened, the Israelites take the ark to Kiriath Jerim, and that's where they leave it. And then Saul is uh, anointed as king. And does Saul bring the ark out to remind the Israelites of the presence of God? Does Saul bring out the ark to show that there is an authority to which he must submit to, to uh, an authority to which he is beholden to? No, Saul leaves the ark in Kiriath-Jerim. And so, in turn, leaves what he thinks is God in Kiriath-Jerim. But David is anointed king, and what does he do with the ark? He wants the ark of the covenant brought to his new capital uh, to show that God is the God of the Israelites. What a great message to send to the people. What a a perfect way to start your reign. What a great way to inaugurate your new capital city. And so all these preparations are made, and the the ark comes out of Kiriath-Jerim, and then we read, In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 and following, David again brought together all the able men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord 
with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. This is a day of celebrating. This is a a day of celebration. We're celebrating God and the victory that he's given us over the Philistines. And we're celebrating the way that God has protected us over these years and and how he has provided a, a city for us and how he has provided a king for us. Uh, The king that wasn't so helpful is now gone, and now we have this new king. And the ark with the cart makes its way up to Jerusalem. And then we read in verses 6 and 7. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. What the heck is happening here? Why would, when everything seems to be good and for God's glory, would God do this? Why, when David has made a good decision to bring the ark to Jerusalem, does God do this? The Bible says God's anger burned against Uzzah because he touched the ark. And I think there is a misunderstanding of the ark here. And really, there's a misunderstanding of who God is here. Because he is not just another god like Dagon of the Philistines. He is not like Baal. He is not like any of the other gods that have come and gone or any of the gods who take the form of wood and stone and can do nothing. Ones that can be captured by enemy armies with no consequences. Ones that do not point to any real future fulfillment. This is Yahweh, the creator of of the universe, the author of all life, the sustainer of the universe, the one who chose a weak people group and made them mighty for his glory, the one who is right and just in all that he does. He, he, he does no wrong. He is blameless and faultless and righteous. He is holy. Not only is he holy, he is holy, 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 meaning he is other. He is separate. He is different from his creation in that he is transcendent and superior. And therefore, he is worthy of honor and reverence and adoration and worship. You see, the Israelites were rejoicing this day because they were happy to see the ark brought to them. But they had allowed sin and compromise to settle into their lives. They were happy to have the big, powerful God who leads them in victory in the battles to defeat their enemies. But when it came to the day-to-day affairs of life, he gets put on the back shelf. He comes out for Sunday, or in their case, for Saturday. But see, they were forgetting who he was and what they were called to and what they are called from called to a life serving and following him and called from sin and being like the communities around them. And how do we know they had forgotten? 
Well, you can look one chapter over in 2 Samuel 5, verse 13. It says, After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. According to Deuteronomy, the king is not to accumulate wives. And I think as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. It's a, it's a reflection of if the king falls, the people are going to fall. And it shows that the people were probably looking at the other kingdoms around them and wanting to look more and more like them. And so is their king. Then look at how the ark was being transported on a cart. What's wrong with that? Anyone know? That's not how the ark is to be transported. It's supposed to look like this, if we can put the picture up. That's what it's supposed to look like. There's brackets on the corners where the ark is for these poles to go in so that the Levites, the priests who represented men to God, who performed the sacrifices of sin atonement, who carried the holy things, they were to carry the ark which represented to the people the presence of God. It also reminded them of who he was and who he had been and who he will be. But when the ark was captured and the Philistines wanted to get rid of the ark, they didn't know how it was supposed to be carried, so they just throw it onto a cart. I'd hate to be the fellow that got that job, that has to put it on the cart. Wouldn't want that. And so they give it back to the Israelites. And David has chosen the method that the Philistines have followed to bring the cart to Jerusalem, rather than the prescribed method seen here that's given in Numbers chapter 4. So when the ox stumbles and the ark is falling and Uzzah reaches out to stop the ark from falling and his sinful hands touch the ark which represents the holy God, his life is taken. How much is this like us? How much we forget as Christians we are called, we are set apart, we are holy, not in the sense that we are perfect, but in the sense that we are other. We are to be different from those around us who do not have Christ. But how much we seek to look like those around us. And so we compromise as David and the Israelites did. We, we forget who we are and we start taking uh, directions from the world and the society and, and, and our communities. Because we don't want to look other and different. How many parents feel that they need to have their kids in every sport and every extracurricular activity under the sun so that their kids look like every other kid and so that parents look like every other parent. What happens to studying the Word? What happens to set aside time for family? It, 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 it gets to the point where we do not look other. We do not look set apart. I'm not saying be weird, but be different. Single people. Spending time socializing in places that we shouldn't be. 
watching Netflix for countless hours doesn't look set apart, doesn't look other. Now, I'm aware that there are some people here today that hear this story of Uzzah and they say, whatever the Lord does is right and good, even if I don't understand it. And there are people here who will say, what the heck? That doesn't sound like a loving and gracious and merciful God. And that's okay. That's a good question to be asking. You won't be chastised for that. You're asking a good question. And that's why we gather here on Sundays. And that's why we gather in small group Bible studies throughout the week. Because we know that God's Word has answers to all the things we're looking for. And so we search the Scriptures for that. We come together, as Josh mentioned, as the body of Christ. And we seek to grow in the knowledge of salvation of Jesus Christ. The word disciple. The word disciple means learner. As far as I know, learners never really make it, at least while we're here on earth. It's constant. We don't stop learning. And that's what we're doing here today. So why would God take the life of this seemingly innocent man? Why would he do it? It's because he's not innocent. Moses heart and his hands are sinful. And in his effort to steady something, he broke a law God created, which was not to touch the ark. Now, what I want you to walk away with from today is not, okay, I need to try and be a better person. I need to try harder. I need to try harder. I need to be a better person. I need to work harder at being a better person. I don't want you to walk away from here thinking, I need to not get caught being, doing something stupid. I need to not get caught doing something stupid. I don't want you to walk away from here thinking, geez, God is arbitrary with the way he takes life. What I want you to walk away with from this is, I want you to walk away amazed and awed at the holiness of our God. You can know that when God says he is loving, that he is far more loving than we could ever comprehend. That when God says he is merciful, he is far more merciful than we could ever imagine. When he says he is just, he is far more just than we could ever think. Because I don't want to worship the God who says he is those things and then he compromises. Or he is unsteady or uneasy or unpredictable or unknowable. He does not deceive. He is true to who he says he is. That is the God we worship and that is the God whose character never changes. So we turn to verse 8. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom. This event is in mind when David writes Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's. 
and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who has the clean hands? Who has the pure heart? Who has not lifted his soul to an idol or sworn by what is false? Who can get this ark into Jerusalem? It's not David. Not any of the Israelites, certainly not Oza. It's not any of us. And why are these the requirements? Why are these the requirements? Because these describe God Himself. He is holy, He is separate, He is totally committed to purity. And if you want to stand before God and not be burned up by His purity, and not be struck down by His holiness, if you want to know this God and live beyond judgment day with Him forever in glory, then you have to be like Him. You have to be completely holy. You have to be completely pure. You have to be totally honest. And here's the bad news. None of us can do that. And if you think you can, let's have a chat afterwards. Who will ever be able to ascend God's holy hill? Who will ever be able to meet God? You would be safer swimming in the ocean with fish blood all around you than to come before the holy God the way that we are. But you see, the death of Uzzah predicts the death of another man who died willingly Because God is holy. On the cross, the absolute holiness and the transforming grace of Jesus meet. Holiness that required sin be dealt with. Grace that demanded a sacrifice. And God did both. Christ is the only one who can ascend the mountain of Psalm 24. He's the only one with clean hands. He's the only one with a pure heart. He's the only one who has never sworn falsely. And it is through him that we have access to the holy God. Amen belongs here. Thought I'd try that. (laughs) And so how does David respond? How does David respond to this? We read in verse 12. Now King David was told the Lord has... Bless the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord, it's not on a cart anymore. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. And wearing a linen ephod, 
David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. He understands the holiness of God, and he responds rightly. In fact, David seems so moved by the event and his new appreciation for God that he doesn't wear his kingly robes as if to attract attention but instead he wears a priest's garment and not an elaborate one. It's a humble one. And he dances before the Lord with joy. But, verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. David's wife, Michal, sees him dancing, and she despised him in her heart. Why would she do that? Michal doesn't understand the joy of humility. She thinks this humility aspect that David has taken is unbecoming of a king. A king should act in a certain way. Uh, The king should dress a certain way. And anything less is undignified. You see, this is the way that her father thought. That's why she's called Michal, the daughter of Saul, not Michal, the wife of David in this passage. King Saul thought, if I look the part, if I act dignified in public, then all will be right. And I think we think the way King Saul thinks, too. If I act a certain way in public, if I wear uh, my mask just right, if I dress in the clothes that make me look like everything is fine, then everything is fine. And I think we teach that to our children as well. Here's the thing. Unless God is seated on the throne of your heart, it's all for show and it's all a lie. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty. They don't put up pretensions. They are open and honest about their need for a Savior. I don't have clean hands and I don't have a pure heart. David tells me, call, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father, or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Your father didn't understand humility. And so I was chosen over him, and because God is holy and mighty and other and worthy, and I am not, and he still chooses me, then I will humiliate myself before him and my people. That we may remember exactly who deserves the honor and the glory and the praise. Because, Michal, I don't have clean hands to carry the ark. I don't have a pure heart to touch the ark. But he still makes a way available to him. And there will come one who will humiliate himself even more than I. Who will leave heaven and the majesty of heaven and will come to earth as a man and 
He will be the only one with clean hands and a pure heart. And he will make an eternal way possible to the Father through his sacrifice, through his offering of himself. And that is the good news. That is the good news. The bad news, none of us are holy or righteous to come before God. But because of Jesus and through his sacrifice, we can be called children of God. And with that, we are separate and other and holy. Not of our doing, not because we kept the ark from falling, but because of what Christ did for you and me. So the next time you expect God to do something because of what you did for him and it doesn't happen, you can humbly rejoice because he is holy and he knows what is best and he's proved it through Christ. Who else would you trust? Let's pray together. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. I don't think we fully understand what that means. And yet you are gracious and patient with us. And you make a way to you possible. Through that shed blood. And so, Father, we ask for forgiveness when we place unrealistic, unfair, unbiblical expectations on you that we shouldn't. And we demand an outcome as if we sit on the throne of judgment. And so, Father, we ask that you would transform our hearts and minds that we would pursue what you have for us, that we would rejoice humbly as King David did in the good news that the king has triumphed, the ark has come to Jerusalem, and Christ the king sits on the throne. May we rest easy in that. May we be transformed daily knowing that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.